Okay, so this is our last proper lecture in this course. Yes, I'm always sad. Um, I'm going to do something practical with you today and what I'm covering. So we've got two commandments left in the Catechism, the two commandments on coveting. So we're going to focus on the ninth of those, which obviously on coveting your neighbor's wife, links with the sixth commandment about adultery. So I have a general session on purity, which is what is covered in the catechism in this section. Um, so the title I've put on the top of the sheet there on the lecture notes is called The Battle for Purity. And it is very significant. The catechism gives this actually very practical, very beautiful, but you might say frightening image that what is purity, it is a battle. There's no pretends to say it's easy. If you're going to be pure, you've got to work at it. So I've, in these notes, I've got the front page really is summarizing directly from the catechism. The rest of the notes are largely integrations of different things I've done with parish youth on purity. Some of that potentially for you to take away, use yourself. Um, and I want to introduce you to some books on purity for teenagers, if you're not familiar with them as well. It's very important you have resources as a pastor to pass on to people. Okay, so let's start with that, that front page summary of some of the points in the catechism there. So the catechism, as I note, describes purity as a battle. So our desires are at war with our intellect, that echoes St. Paul's, I do the thing I don't want to do, and the thing I do want to do, I don't do. There's this battle within me. Now, see, this affects both the ninth and the tenth commandment about coveting. So, quoting the Catechism, uh, St. John distinguishes three kinds of covetousness or concupiscence. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In the Catholic catechetical tradition, the Ninth Commandment forbids carnal concupiscence. The Tenth forbids coveting others' goods. Yes, yeah, so hopefully you're all familiar enough with catechesis in the Bible, this threefold concupiscence, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you know the three evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, obedience, these are given to us by the Lord as the remedy for this threefold concupiscence. So chastity um, is the remedy for the lust of the flesh. Holy poverty or a spirit of poverty, living amidst this world as if we didn't, as if we lived, belong to another world is the remedy for the lust of the eyes wanting to own everything. And the pride of life, obedience. And those three are taken in a vowed form, as you know, by a religious, um, but you as diocesan priests are called to live those three also, not in a vowed form, but you are called to live. Uh, if I'm still doing T2 formation when you get to that stage, one of the things I'll be doing with you in diocesan priestly spirituality is how in Pastoris Double Vobis, John Paul II talks about how Yes, you as a diocesan don't take a vow of these three things, poverty, chastity, obedience. But your consecration to Christ, your configuring to him, demands of you the living of um, pastoral charity, as he calls it. And you can only live that pastoral charity if you grow in love, in charity, by poverty, chastity, and obedience. So these are as proper to us as diocesans as they are to religious, even though the form of them isn't the same. Anyway, that's a slight diversion, but that the remedy for this threefold concupiscence is given to us by the Lord. Um, I think when we talked about the passions, we'd have talked about concupiscence already, but it is reiterated here in this part of the catechism. Concupiscence 
is the word describing the fallen passions war on reason. Literally, the Latin means with desire. It thus can cover both the disordered and ordered movements of passion. So if you read the Summa Theologica, sometimes St. Thomas will be referring to the concupiscible appetite, not as something disordered, but just as this thing within you that is moving with passion. But generally speaking in the tradition, and as the catechism takes that phrase up, concupiscence is used to refer to the fallen tendency within us. Sorry, back to my notes. Before the fall, our passions moved us to the good properly, moved us to real goods, not apparent goods, as we looked at earlier in the semester. Moved us to goods in right measure, either not too much nor too little. So, you know, we covered that when we looked at the passions and virtue earlier. Quoting the Catechism, etymologically, concupiscence as a word can refer to any intense form of human desire. Christian theology has given us a particular meaning, the movement of the sensitive appetite contrary to the operation of human reason. The Apostle St. Paul identifies it with the rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. Concupiscence stems from the disobedience of the first sin of Adam and Eve. It unsettles man's moral faculties and, without being in itself an offence, inclines man to commit sin. Um, so it's going to depend on how you're using the word. So, the, in a sense, the Thomistic original use of the word, meaning with passion, you'd have had that before the fall. So Adam and Eve had bodies, therefore they had passions. They were moved to the good. They'd have seen something good and felt a movement to it. I'm guessing they didn't have donuts, but if they'd seen a donut, they would have had a spontaneous movement of the passion towards it. Um, but rightly ordered. So they'd have seen a donut and they'd have wanted just the right size of donut. They wouldn't have wanted a huge plate of them to ruin their appetite for supper. You know, that they'd have wanted the right thing in the right quantity. They, they simply wouldn't have felt a movement of the passions to something that was wrong. So part of the reason that the original sin was so significant is they committed this sin without any inclination to sin. Their inclination was to the good, to the good in right measure and a real good, not an apparent good. And yet even with that rightly ordered inclination, they chose not to do it. And that's, so they didn't have concupiscence as a disordered passion before the fall. After the fall, we all have it as, as they're inherit, inheriting it from them. It's important to be clear about that because that gives us a different vision of human nature. So we don't view the body as evil in itself, the passions as evil in themselves but we are aware there is a disorder in the body and in the passion. And this relates to purity and chastity because it means if the passions are themselves good, they can be retrained, reformed to react to the right things. Whereas conversely, when I sin, I train my passions to want more and more of that sin. Whereas the more I refrain from pornography, 
the more it's less and less a thing I'm being moved towards. Sin reinforces itself, virtue reinforces itself as well. We're all going to fall asleep today without you telling me it's passing the coals. Okay, purity. So, what is purity? This is what we're focusing on, on this page. Um, Purity means we are rightly focused on God and on things as God sees them. So purity isn't just about sex. Impurity, which is the word we frequently use about sex, is a problem because it throws all of our purity out. But purity is a positive thing. Purity is about an orientation to him and to want other things as much as they relate to him. Closing the catechism. The sixth beatitude proclaims, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart refers to those who have attuned their intellects and wills to the demands of God's holiness, chiefly in these three areas. Charity, chastity or sexual rectitude, love of truth, and orthodoxy of faith. There is a connection between purity of heart, of body, and of faith. And that connection works in all kinds of directions. So one of the things St. Thomas talks about is how your, your intellect is clouded by sin. Yeah, so in as much as I get my passions all excited about something, I then can't think properly. Um, whereas conversely, I can use my thinking in as much as it is thinking properly to realise what I need to redirect my passions towards. So this is a struggle. Um, as I say there, quoting the Catechism, it is a lifelong struggle. So, you know, there is a stereotype. You're thinking as young men that this is something you've got to work out for the next few years and then it'll all get easier. And um, you will have old men come to you in confession, confessing habitual pornography. Um, you will also have old men coming having completely, well not completely, more or less completely conquered this vice, but it doesn't automatically go away. And someone who has bad habits, those can reinforce right through life. You'll get old men who have reached a stage where they are impotent. Yeah, so they can't function, but they can still, their desire is disordered. Um, it's a lifelong struggle. It's a struggle we can win, but it is a lifelong struggle. There's nothing automatic about finding it easier as you get older. Max, can you read that quotation at the bottom there? So this is um, all from a, a quote from the Catechism. The baptized. The baptized must continue to struggle against concupiscence and with watch and disordered desires. With God's grace, he will prevail. By the virtue of gift of chastity, chastity lets us love with upright and undivided heart. By purity of intention, which consists in seeking true end of man. The purity of vision, external and internal. By discipline of feelings and imagination. By refusing all complicity in impure thoughts that incline us to turn aside from the path of God's commandments by prayer. Purity requires modesty, an integral part of temperance. It means refusing to unveil what should remain hidden. It guides one, one's looks at others and behaves towards them in conformity with the dignity of persons and their solidarity. Okay, so there's a lot that the catechism's put into a single paragraph there. Um, all indicate there are a lot of tools to growth and purity. Lifelong struggle, but a struggle that there are many weapons in the fight. 
Okay, so the remainder of this lecture, I want to unpack, in a sense, what the catechism has given there in some practical guidance, um, guidance on purity. Now, if I can ask you to first turn to page seven. I don't know what you do with my lecture notes, if you just take them out and burn them as soon as you leave the room, but in case you might not, can I suggest that this page you store somewhere? Um, if you go to my website, if you look for me on Google, um, there's a whole folder uh, linked on the website. You can download all of the lectures of this semester. You could download this page if you want to keep it somewhere. This lists um, some good resources to give to teenagers. So hopefully when you're priests, you will run a youth group in your parish. Hopefully as priests, you'll see it as a big part of your priestly pastoral focus to give them time and attention. It's really valuable for them to hear from their priest about purity. Not just to hear, it is great for them to hear a young adult speak about these things, to have a young woman speak to the girls, a young man speak to the boys. But it's also valuable for them to hear from their priest about this. Uh, I don't know how many of you are already familiar with Jason Everett as an author. Um, so he's one of, along with Christopher West, one of, in America, probably the biggest campaigners for purity, he and his wife. He's written this book called If You Really Loved Me. And as a pastor, I've given a copy of this to every teenage boy in my parish. Um, it's one of those books written in question and answer format, so it's easy for a teenager to drip it, drop in and out of. Um, Another book called Real Love by Mary Beth Bonacci, also on that list on page seven. Very similar, but written by a woman. And therefore, the perspective is always a little different. So my experience has been girls find this book a little easier to engage with, and boys find the Jason Ever book a little easier to engage with. So um, I suggest you keep a note of those for the future. A book for you to read and process and use for your advice, but not to give out, is this one here called Every Young Man's Battle. Um, it's an amazingly practical book on pornography, on masturbation, um, also on how a boy should be behaving with a girl and not. Um, the problem with it, why you shouldn't give this out to a teenager, is it's written by Protestants and it's got some bad advice um, with respect to masturbation. So it's written by two guys, and because they, as good Protestants are saying, only the Bible, only the Bible, they can't find the word masturbation in the Bible. Therefore, they're not sure whether it's always a sin. So that lust is always described as a sin in the Bible, so they say lust is wrong, but if you could masturbate in a non-lustful manner then that might not be a sin uh, anyway so they have a, a whole section in which they're going all over the place trying to figure this out because of sola scriptura um, that if you lent that book to a boy that could not be helpful for him but um, there are two chapters in here that I'm going to give you kind of a summary outline of that are amazingly helpful and they're a combination of what modern science tells us um, about how we can get addicted in these things but also what modern science tells us about how we can overcome. Are you all on the Augustine Way program? Almost all? Um, so I know you've done at least some of the science of this in that program, and you're gonna be continuing that presumably next semester. Um, but I'm gonna talk you through a little bit of that today. I guess a question along with this is, do you, do you think it'd be important to bring this up in homilies, or would it be more important to like, talk to like boys and girls to age um, individuals and groups? I think both, because it's the kind of thing 
one of my mistakes as a priest has been to think, oh, I said that already. It was seven years ago, I said that to the parish. Um, you got to say these things again and again and again. Um, when you're preaching, things like this, you can, you can say a lot without using certain words. So you can say something that the adult knows what you mean, but the seven-year-old hasn't got a clue. Um, and if you've done that repeatedly, your adults in the congregation will feel not worried that you're about to say something inappropriate. That said, I have repeatedly over the years preached on sex. Whenever I have, I've made an announcement the week before in the newsletter um, that I'll be preaching on something sensitive. And if you think your children, you don't want them to hear that, then at every mass I've had some kind of children's liturgy that the children can be taken out to and not hear the homily so that no one can say, I didn't want you to say that in front of my child. Um, so I've, give, I've empowered the parents to be the ones making that decision. And my experience is that parents have felt respected by me doing that. But almost always the parents have wanted their child to be there. Um, and I've also found when I've put something like that in the newsletter, I'll then have families from other parishes turn up that Sunday because word gets around that you know, there's a lot of families that feel that they want their priests to say more about this than, than we're doing. Um, and you don't get many opportunities in the kind of lectionary. Um, you've got to be thinking ahead when in the lectionary is something referred to that I can reasonably build on as an example of lust the Lord Jesus talks about lust in the gospel today, um, so forth. It takes a bit of planning to do that. But if you're going to be a good pastor, you've got to plan that. One of my priest friends back home, annoyingly super as a priest, um, he has, he's a university chaplain. Uh, he has the entire year mapped out what he's going to preach on for the entire, for the entire year. And that means he's giving his students a comprehensive catechesis, as well as good sermons, because he's planned how he's going to integrate certain topics through all the readings and feasts of the year. Um, and even if you're not that planned, I think you need to be subconsciously thinking that all the time, thinking, I've not spoken about this thing, and my parish needs to hear about it. When am I going to do it? Any other general comments? Would you have like a, you said you gave these out as gifts to the, the teens? Right. Would you have a special meeting or something like that? Or you just... um, I've, each parish I've been in, I've had a youth group I've either set up or formed to be um, more a thing of formation and prayer rather than just a social gathering. Um, and so I've used that as my context. Sometimes I've said to parents that this is what I'm going to be doing this night, so even children that don't normally come might have come. Um, I suppose another way of answering it is you've got to look for every chance you've got and make chances. And hopefully, if you're building a good foundation, your teenagers are going to be the best apostles to other ones. Yeah. So I can remember one of the parishes, after I'd given this book out, there was one family that hadn't come to the session. Who was it that gave the book to the girls at, at the Sunday Mass? It was other teens who had been at my youth group. Um, you don't always get that dynamic, but when you can get it and foster it, that's obviously a great way to get things going. Okay, so page seven there, some resources, take away, save somewhere. Um,
Yeah, this book, If You Really Love Me, is now 12 years out of date. It's been revised since, but you know, books of this quality don't come along very often. It's still a good book, um, and I suspect it'll be a good book for a long time. Okay, let's turn to page three. Um, and what I want to do on this page is kind of summarise some of the practical advice that's in this book here, Every Young Man's Battle. There's a parallel book called Every Young Woman's Battle. Um, I'm not saying that to you for obvious reasons, but just to let you know there is another similar book. Um, so, page three. Reforming the sex drive, some science-based observations and some practical advice. So the first point there is that the sex drive is not fixed in its amount. You can increase it, and then it becomes more difficult to control. Now, reversely, you can decrease it. Every healthy man has a sex drive, but in its natural state, it's relatively easy to control. Um, now, how, what does that look like in a kind of vicious circle or in a virtuous circle? So first, the vicious circle, sadly. When we do certain things, the body gets a chemical high. This is you know, a scientific observation, observable fact. It's a chemical high in response to sexual pleasure. Our sex drive then increases, and we struggle to control it. Viewing a sexual image doesn't just affect us then at that moment we're viewing it. It increases our drive for future days or even weeks. Thinking a sexual thought, entertaining a daydream, increases our drive chemically for future days or weeks. Masturbation and its sexual pleasure increases our drive for future days or weeks. All of this causes a vicious circle so that it becomes increasingly difficult to be pure because we've caused our sex drive to increase. Which means, as I summarise there, that our current impurity is the accumulation of many individual impure acts of our past and recent past. Conversely, the virtuous circle Every time we starve our sexual appetite, our sex drive decreases, eventually down to its natural state. So, starving the eyes. Every time we refrain from looking impurely, our sexual fantasies lack something to think about, and our sex drive decreases. Starving the mind. Every time we refrain one thought, our drive decreases slightly, and it becomes easier for the future. Starving ourselves is the pleasure. Every time a man who is addicted to masturbation um, refrains, his sex drive decreases slightly, and this then becomes easier the next time. So each single victory in the battle makes future victories much easier to achieve. Then say so this is progressive. A man in serious habitual sin will be able to drop his sex drive to an easily controllable state in six weeks. That's six weeks isn't a random, that's supposedly scientific observation about hormone levels within us. Even within one week, he will sense a difference. But he will likely hit a wall at three weeks. Like any addiction, he's going to hit a wall. But if he pushes through and perseveres, it will get much easier. Yes, so you know someone who's got an addiction to cocaine or whatever, that there is an initial phase where it is much harder, you know, going cold turkey or whatever. Um, if they can push through that, it becomes easier. 
there's a parallel addiction pattern in our engaging with the pleasures of the flesh. And as future confessors, it's very important that you are, have this awareness of the science in your mind when you are hearing confession. So if you're trying to encourage people to make the point to them, yes, it's difficult, but it will get easier if you persevere. Yes, it may feel like this drive is uncontrollable, but the drive, even at a hormonal, physical level, will decrease, become manageable if you persevere. So I was in a conversation with a group of friends not so long ago, and one of them asked me a question. Um, because this is all implying that somebody's really struggling with something in battling. What about the person that, you know, this question was something along the lines, well, you know, they should have been able to overcome this, um, and, you know, he's considering the sound of the light and stuff, he's like, but I'm not really struggling with this, like letting it go. He's like, should I be, you know, worried about that? Um, just, you know, he's not really struggling with this desire to like, because it was like, how can he sacrifice something he's not really struggling with, if you will, per se, you know? That's been said multiple times, even here. So. Good for him. You know, that's why I told him, right? So I, that was like, I was like, um, you know, big, yeah. Okay. Like, should be, you know, but should but be actually, like, yeah, I am being flippant. Um, it is, um, as a 50-year-old man, this is a thing that will vary in different phases of your life. Um, so it's often said that someone struggling with impurity, they need to work. Uh, that a man being engaged in doing something fills the mind with something else. But sometimes a man can be so stressed by his work that he's busy with that that stress will seek relief in impurity. I say that because just because a guy is saying, I don't feel this is a struggle, I don't feel I'm giving up anything here, he can't say that of himself 10 years from now. I, yeah. Sorry, I'm trying to enable himself to be so to foster virtue in his own life so when those opportunities if it does happen that is well he's able to find it and to try and have the self-knowledge to try and think why what am I doing right in my life now that this is easy one of the difficult things in my experience is um, so back to the, th the vision what is purity purity is that right focus on the Lord that one of the great remedies for impurity uh, is devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, is regular, intense adoration of the Lord. In my experience, many young men I've counseled on this is only if they've committed themselves to a half hour of daily prayer before the Lord that they've been able to break this habit. That you've got to fill yourself with another love if this love for this base thing is going to be overcome. So the guy in the seminary who's not feeling the struggle, that may be because actually he's already doing that bit. And he's not thinking, oh, the reason I'm okay with this struggle is because I'm regular in my prayer and I'm growing in my love of the Lord. I've got something else that is satisfying me, that my cravings aren't grubbing, grubbing around it the lower things, that I'm regular in my study, I'm disciplined in my life, I'm sleeping properly at night, um, therefore these other things become easier. Whereas if you're doing those things but you're not realising you're doing them, then when you go out of the seminary, you're not going to realise how important it is to kind of transfer those patterns into your new setting. Okay, I'm not going to go through all of the page three and four, but this book talks about um, talks about bouncing the eyes, getting a habit. So, you know, I see that 
she's not around in this weather, but the skimpily clad runner who's going around the grounds, I need to have an instinctive habit that when I see her in the corner of my eye, I don't do the double take or the triple take, um, okay. that I bounce my eyes away. Um, with a thought process of rejoicing that there is beauty in this world, rejoicing that she is a good part of God's creation, but knowing I shouldn't be looking at her as a thing. If she's not coming up to me to engage with me as a person, I shouldn't be visually engaging with her body uh, in the distance. Uh, bounce the eyes. Similarly, bounce the mind in our thoughts. Um, Actually, let's go through the thoughts section. This may be stating the obvious, but top of page four. Because um, there can come a stage in your celibate life where you think, well, it's only thoughts I'm dealing with here. That's not really important. Actually, your thoughts can be as problematic as anything else. Your thoughts can stir up a distraction in your love um, as much as grosser failings. Okay, point A. We are capable of controlling our thoughts. We are. We can do this thing that saints call mortify our thoughts. Mortify meaning put a thought to death. Break a chain of thoughts. A chain of thoughts that's going to be leading me worse and worse and worse. I can break that chain. Now how do we do that? Well first I say starving the eyes starves the mind by depriving it of things to think of. That's a long-term way of controlling our thoughts. But, more generally, to distract ourselves. So you can't simply tell yourselves to stop thinking about it. You need to start thinking about something else instead. So maybe something religious. You might think of the Lord Jesus on the cross for you, for your sins, for your sins of impurity. Um, thinking of something else. Maybe something interesting. So a novel, a film, something you're interested in. This is part of why it's important to have hobbies and such, that you have interesting thoughts going on in your mind that you can start thinking about. Sometimes even something worrying. So your exam deadline, your study deadline, can anything to stop you thinking about the impure chain of thoughts. Break the chain of thoughts. Distract yourself. That's one thing. Then processing your thoughts. Processing them differently, properly. So if you see a girl, or think of a girl, think of her in a certain category. Process her. See a person to be loved, not just a body. See that is someone's sister. I wouldn't want my sister being looked at by a guy that way. I'm therefore not going to think of her that way. See, that is someone's future wife. Not my future wife, that's someone else's future wife. I shouldn't be looking at her that way. Thinking of her that way. That how you process, how you categorise her, will change how you think of her for the future. And then when faced with a particularly tempting woman, the first line of your thought defense needs to be this relationship with this woman threatens my union with Christ, thus I must not even entertain it. The second line of thought defense, that I have no right to these thoughts. This woman does not belong to me. And third line, heighten my alert, say, a red alert to myself, bounce my eyes away from the woman, bounce my thoughts away from her. Um, and this book recommends what um, many find helpful, to have a motto, to have a Bible verse ready to quote to yourself on an occasion of temptation. Over the years I've often rotated Bible verses this way, different biblical images. For a long time I found the um, 
you know, in the book of Apocalypse, 144,000 the virgin martyrs who follow the lamb wherever he goes. I just find that such a beautiful image. Um, I want to be one of those, those virgin martyrs who follow the lamb wherever he goes. It says, these are those who have not touched women. Interrupt your thoughts. The thoughts you do have, process them differently. Think of this woman you're thinking of, think of her differently. Um, and try to have something else to put into your mind. So our thoughts, we can change, we can control, we can divert. All of which I'm heard you, heard, sure you've heard before. Um, pornography, this next little section here. So just to kind of reiterate the point, why is pornography wrong? Um, it takes us out of reality into fantasy, and it doesn't really fulfill us. It's progressive, that the imagination gets bored and moves you to more exotic, more extreme sites, for example, violent sex. It's wrong because it's a real person enslaved in a low-wage salary. That the woman on the screen, they're not really enjoying it. They're being paid to pretend to. Treats a woman, person like a mere thing, thing to be looked at. It takes something special, intimate and private and shows it to the world. So how do you avoid it? Well, tell yourself, this is a real person. not just a TV show. Ask yourself, as you're tempted to look, how much is that person being paid? Tell yourself this isn't a victimless sin. If you're watching, the internet knows you're watching. That is going on some counter, that is feeding somebody's porn industry. It's not a victimless sin. And tell yourself, this is someone's sister. I wouldn't want my sister being reduced to this. And all of that, be honest with yourself. Loneliness, have you touched on this in the Augustan way? So loneliness is one of those things that can be a... It's not an automatic thing, but it can be a, a, a cause or an occasion at the very least, that loneliness makes us seek compensation, seek pleasure. Masturbation promises a false intimacy. But we need to remember it's, it is false, it's not real. So we need to, when we're tempted in this kind of pattern, we need to make the effort to spend time with friends um, and, you know, avoid too much computer games that they lead to that lonely, unsatisfying use of the computer. Okay, I want to throw a couple other thoughts at you that are a little more Thomistically phrased. Um, in terms of connection with the virtues. So this is on page five. Um, so page five and six are um, a synthesis of some of my um, synthesizing of stuff. As I indicate on the top, there's origin, the, the core of this though is from a book by Father Basil Cole called Christian Totality. And he has a, a section, a chapter in there on the battle for purity. So what he calls a series of steps. What do you do when you're faced by a temptation to unchastity? So first he says, don't panic in your first awareness of the temptation. That panic um, gives more power to the tempter. 
make an immediate but brief internal no to the temptation. Not a complicated no, not a no invoking this, just no. Um, with that, a very brief, short prayer. Um, as I've already said, distract your mind by thinking about something else. So think either about something you find interesting, a good movie or a novel, or absorbing, like work problems, or pious, the sufferings of Christ on the cross. I don't panic by fighting the impure thought. Um, fill your mind with something else instead. You notice afterwards, after either the temptation's passed or you've fallen, try to forget about the temptation, otherwise it'll just lead to a recurrence of it. Um, apart from getting to confession, there's nothing to be gained about dwelling on it more and more. That's just going to bring the impurity back. So this also helps avoid scruples in this regard. Simply move on to other things. Confess your degree of consent to the temptation. Was it brief in passing? Was it prolonged? Was it consent in thought or word or deed? then after confessing it, forget about it and know you're forgiven. Point six, learn to rechannel your energy in activity. Um, otherwise, sexual tension increases. So, you know, why, well, um, there are many reasons I suppose we have a gym here, but exercise is something a normal man needs. If you aren't exercising, um, you are going to struggle with this. You need exercise, you need devotion in work, to have that satisfaction that comes with work. So when you don't feel satisfied in your work, that's one of the reasons you seek satisfaction in things of impurity. And play, the recreation, whatever you do to recreate yourself, um, that also is part of how we rechannel our energy. And I quote there that boredom in the sense of not feeling satisfied. So you know, there's a boredom that comes when you don't have anything to do, but there's another kind of boredom when I've got lots of stuff to do, but none of it is satisfying. When I'm not satisfied, I'm going to look for something that will satisfy me. And impurity promises to be such a thing, even though it fails. Is that one of the reasons that, like, gluttony, like, is oftentimes closely related? Because, like, you're seeking other kinds of pleasures. And you're seeking a pleasure of touch. And that's what those two, gluttony and lust, have in common. Um, and so if somebody confesses one and they don't make any reference to the other, I will often ask gently, are there any struggles in that regard because often those two things go hand in hand there's sometimes one will be a replacement for the other um, but they both have that same root I'm bored, I'm not satisfied with what I'm doing that bowl of candy um, promises satisfaction and then it's sat there Okay, point seven, stating the obvious, learn from your occasions of sin by experience. You know, there are some guys who can go to a beach and see a girl in a bikini and it doesn't have much of a reaction on them. You need to know yourself to know what path, how do I typically react um, to know what things I need to avoid, even if my friend with me won't struggle. Um, similarly with TV programs movies. Here in the seminary, something you might be able to watch. Is your brother in Christ watching it with you? Is he actually, is it more important for him than for you to fast forward through this scene? Um, that we need to build each other up in this regard.
Have you heard about the connection with self-esteem? Has that been covered in the Augustan way? Yes. It's a weird thing, really, because we call somebody a wanker as a term of abuse um, for a reason. Um, this solitary vice is a lonely, pathetic thing. But yet there can be a, a promise that of feeling more of a man, feeling more satisfied with this. Um, and so people who psychologically suffer with low self-esteem will sometimes be inclined to seek somehow a, a remedy here. But it's a false remedy. So that the remedy has to be seeking to resolve that lack of self-esteem, not, um, not in this outlet. Then lastly on the page, that devotion to the Blessed Sacrament and to the Blessed Virgin. Um, these are supernaturally the two powerful tools. So I have a physical problem. Where do I physically most come in contact with the Lord? He's there in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, Uh, okay, let's turn over the page. I'm not going to go through all of this, but point two on page six. The virtue of play. Um, now, I think I very briefly talked on about this with you before. So in the Summa Theologica, St. Thomas has a virtue that he calls it, sometimes translated as play, sometimes translated as games. It's a virtue. Um, we need to cultivate it. Relates to exercise, relates to sports, but other things. So see, there's such a thing as too much play, but there's also such a thing as a lack of it. The lack of play in our lives can sometimes be to, due to pride, that we foolishly think that we're strong enough not to need to relax. St. Thomas, building on Aristotle, says that the soul's rest is in pleasure. God intends us to rest the body and spirit in licit pleasures. When we deny ourselves licit pleasures and joys and friendships, we then get more tempted to illicit pleasures. I note two excesses. A pampered body with excess pleasure and no disciplined exercise, that's one way we can then be inclined to impurity. But Boredom, as I've mentioned already, is another way to impurity. You don't feel satisfied. You're all engaged in your work. You're going to be inclined to seek the satisfaction of impurity. The virtue to remedy here is play. I need to know what recreates me, what remakes me as a person. I know I need to sleep for my body's sake. Well, for my soul's sake, I need to have properly ordered recreation, properly ordered play, properly ordered entertainment with friends, with activity, with sport, so that I just have this natural, the proper pleasures of the soul that God has established so that my soul rests just as my body needs to rest. Point four on humility. Um, one of the great spiritual classics I quote there is Dom Lawrence Scopoli in his book The Spiritual Combat. He talks about how God particularly humbles men by causing them to fall in sin or allowing them to fall in sin because we in our foolish pride think we can be great ourselves and sometimes what is the sin we fall in is this sin of impurity 
and that somehow is permitted by God for our good to humble us. If we let it humble us, we will come back to him with a, a newer strength, a newer foundation. Okay, I'm going to move you on to something else. Top of page eight, please. Um, so the question here is whether you should be courting or whether you should be dating. Um, obviously, for you, none, neither. Um, I don't know if you've read or heard it. The, the phrasing of this is a distinction with teenagers. In our culture today, it's normal for a guy to hook up with a girl just as a thing to enjoy each other now. The traditional thing is to be wanting a marriage and to behave now in a way that's gonna build within myself behavior for a future marriage. Whereas our short-term focus on dating, the hookup culture, um, fooling around in the backseat of the car, whatever, all are building patterns of behavior that actually aren't good foundations for a future marriage. And this is a difficult set of questions to raise with teenagers because it is so contrary to the world they live in. But if we're going to be honest with them, this is what we need to be pointing out to them. Do you want a happy future marriage or do you want to have a good time now? that really those two are both possible, or you've got to redefine good time now. Okay, I'm going to briefly read through that first block quote I have there on courting or dating. So a key question to have youth asking, do you want to engage in behavior that will be fun now or do you want to build behavior aiming at a long, stable, happy future marriage? So contemporary dating, this concept is aimed at the now, romantic relationship in the short term. And you want to ask, well, what did the saints say how I should behave when I'm dating? They have nothing to say on the matter because they don't think such a thing exists, yeah? And that should really so one of the seminarians in my last seminary did his entire STD, STB um, dissertation on, um, on this question, chastity training programs. And he was look, trying to find what the saints had to say about dating. They have nothing to say about it. Because the only thing they're looking at is when you're looking to find your future wife or, or husband. Courting. So courting is an old-fashioned word, but it's a different concept. This activity is aimed at finding a future spouse. Not everybody courted, true, is equally serious, but anybody courted is only courted because you are seeking testing for the long term. And I say this is the only style of dating that exists in the tradition. So for example, if you know you're going to enter seminary, you shouldn't be dating. Um, now, when I was your age, that was not being said. We were being told to, oh, go have experience. Um, which is really just using a girl. Um, it's not treating her as somebody to have a relationship. It's, it's also depriving her of a, a time when she might actually meet her future husband because she's hanging out with me instead. Um, Then I know a few points about what a suitable girlfriend should look like. Um, the point I've made in bold there, that I, I 
try to make strongly with teenagers is don't waste time in an unsuitable relationship. You know, particularly the older you get, the more you look back and you see people, that they get to an old age and they fail to find a spouse because they've wasted a lot of time in dead-end relationships that they knew weren't going anywhere, but they just wanted someone to be with right now. Well, every time you're with someone for the right now, you're failing to be available to meet what could be your future spouse. again you know this continually dating culture undermines your capacity to be thinking for the long term and some stuff on boundaries there that I've taken from those two books I've recommended to you and the last page there on nine um, I've got a chart that I've given to teenagers um, Making the point that there's all kinds of behavior that is good, that is appropriate when you're married, but you're not married. Um, Mary Beth Bonacci, in her book, Real Love, she makes the point about a guy and a girl getting intimate together, um, she kind of enjoys him being turned on, he's enjoying being turned on, but she's making him want her so much in order to not give him what he's then geared up for at a bodily level. It just doesn't make sense logically. And therefore, to, to plan the physical boundaries of the relationship, knowing that you shouldn't get that far. kind of general or specific questions? Okay, I would just repeat the general point as future priests, this is something you have to know you've got to be giving a lead on. It's good to have, if you have, young adults giving a lead and talking about this to teenagers in your parish. You also need to be at their side, making it clear that the priest also sees this as important, that the pastor, this is your care for them. I'm gonna get most parishes you go into, there's gonna be no, in a sense, infrastructure already in place doing this. You've got to realize this has to be done. If you're not doing this, then everything else for the future of families in your future parishes, marriages, is not going to be secure if you've not enabled the foundation by enabling the youth to be pure. Um, not to mention the fact, you know, so many unhappy youth experiences can be prevented if we give them the guidance that is there. Okay, to close, back to where we began in this, with on the catechism, the two commandments on coveting, the fact that there is within us this desire, concupiscence with desire, in itself is just normal human functioning, we do desire things, but because of our first parents, 
that desire within us is disordered, the concupiscence of the eyes, the concupiscence of the flesh, the pride of life, we need to reorder those desires by the growth in virtue, by training, by repetition. We can reform, restructure our passions so that they move us to the right things in the right quantity. that's what purity gives us but it is a battle and thus the catechism calls this section the battle for purity <laughs>